0: Elizabeth Horner, Kathleen Powell Moreno, Grace Crowe, Michelle Marenza, Claire Cook, Bethany Gilbert, Erica Wilkins, and Julie Tapp. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It means a lot to me. And for those of you who don't know, all the names that I just read are new patrons on patreon.com, which means that they like the show and they decided to give back a little by going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating a little bit every month a lot of donations are one dollar a month two dollars a month and five dollars a month gets you access to a very special patreon poetry feed where i read poetry and send it right to you for donating twice a month every other monday so if you like the show maybe it's helped you get a better night's sleep consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really, really long way. And of course, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you donate. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. And the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Today is a book that has been highly requested, and I really don't know anything about it other than its name is very, very familiar to me. It's ben Her* by Lou Wallace. I wandered into the local library here in Mount Holly, Vermont, and like most books that I've been finding for the show in the last three to four months, it was just kind of on the bookshelf staring out at me, so today we're going to read a little bit of it, I apologize if I mispronounce any biblical names that you all know much better than I do, but hopefully I can read this in a nice slow rhythmic tone so you can doze off into a deep, deep slumber. So now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow. Just how you like it. Get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed, limb by limb. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. In the desert, the Jebel Zubla is a mountain fifty miles or more in length, and so narrow that its tracery on the map gives it a likeness to a caterpillar crawling from the south to the north. Standing on its red and white cliffs and looking off onto the path of the rising sun, one sees only the desert of Arabia, where the east winds, so hateful to the vine growers of Jericho, have kept their playground since the beginning. Its feet are well covered by sands tossed from the Euphrates, there to lie, for the mountain is a wall to the pasture lands of the Moab and Ammon to the west, lands which else had been of the desert apart. The Arab has impressed his language upon everything south and east of Judea, so in his tongue the old Jebel is apparent of numberless waities which, intersecting the Roman road, now a dim suggestion of what once it was, a dusty path for Syrian pilgrims to and from Mecca run their furrows, deepening as they go, to pass the torrents of the rainy season into the Jordan, or their last receptacle, the Dead Sea. Out of one of these waities, or more particularly, out of that one which rises at the extreme end of the Jebel and extending east of north becomes at length the bed of the Javik River, a traveler pass, going to the tablelands of the desert. To this person the attention of the reader is first besought. Judged by his appearance, he was quite forty-five years old, his beard once the deepest black, flowing broadly over his breast, was streaked with white. His face was brown as a parched coffee berry, and so hidden by red kufia as to be but in part visible. Now and then he raised his eyes, and they were large and dark. He was clad in the flowing garments so universal in the east, but their style may not be described more particularly where he sat under a miniature tent and wrote a great white dromedary. It may be doubted if the people of the West ever overcome the impression made upon them by the first view of a camel equipped and loaded for the desert. Custom, so fatal to other novelties, affects this feeling but little. At the end of long journeys with caravans, after years of residence with the Bedouin, the western-born, wherever they may be, will stop and wait the passing of the stately brute. The charm is not in the figure, which not even love can make beautiful, nor in the movement, the noiseless stepping or the broad careen. As is the kindness of the sea to a ship, so is that of the desert to its creature. It clothes him, with all its mysteries in such manner too, that while we are looking at him, we are thinking of them. Therein is the wonder. The animal which now came out of the weighty might well have claimed the customary homage. Its color and height, its breadth of foot, its bulk of body, not fat but overlaid with muscle, its long slender neck, the swan-like curvature, the head, wide between the eyes and tapering to a muzzle which a lady's bracelet might have almost clasped. Its motion, step long and elastic, tread sure and soundless all certified its Syrian blood, old as the days of Cyrus and absolutely priceless. There was the usual bridle, covering the forehead with scarlet fringe and garnishing the throat with pendant brazen chains, each ending with a tinkling silver bell. But to the bridle, there was neither rein for the rider nor strap for a driver. The furniture perched on the back was an invention which, with any other people than of the East, would have made the inventor renowned. It consisted of two wooden boxes, scarce four feet in length, balanced so that one hung at each side. The inner space, softly lined and carpeted, was arranged to allow the master to sit or lie half-reclined. Over it all was stretched a green awning. Broad back and breast straps and girths, secured with countless knots and ties, held the device in place. In such manner was the ingenious sons of Cush, and contrived to make comfortable the sunburnt ways of the wilderness, along which lay their duty as often as their pleasure. When the dromedary lifted itself out of the last break of the weighty, the traveler had passed the boundary of El Belka, the ancient Ammon. It was morning time. Before him was the sun, half contained in fleecy mist. Before him also spread the desert, not the realm of drifting sands, which was farther on but the region where the herbage began to dwarf, where the surface is strewn with boulders of granite and gray and brown stones interspersed with languishing acacias and tufts of camel grass. The oak, bramble, and arbutus lay behind as if they had come to a line, looked over into the well-less waste and crouched with fear. And now there was an end of path or road, more than ever, the camel seemed insensibly driven. It lengthened and quickened its pace. Its head pointed straight towards the horizon. Through the wide nostrils it drank the wind in great draughts. The litter swayed and rose and fell like a boat in the waves. Dried leaves and occasional beds rustled underfoot. Sometimes a perfume like Absinthe sweetened the air. Lark and chat and rock swallow leaped to a wing and white partridges ran rustling and clucking out of the way. More rarely a fox or hyena quickened his gallop to study the intruders at a safe distance. Off to the right rose the hills of Jebel, the pearl-gray veil resting upon them, changing momentarily into purple, which the sun would make matchless a little later. Over their highest peaks, a vultures sailed on broad wings into widening circles, but of all these things, the tenant under the green tent saw nothing, or at least made no sign of recognition. His eyes were fixed and dreamy. The going of the man, like that of the animal, was as one being led. For two hours, the dromedary swung forward, keeping the trot steadily and the line due east. In that time, the traveler never changed his position, nor looked to the right or left. On the desert, distance is not measured by miles or leagues, but by the sot, or hour, and the manzo or halt. Three and a half leagues fill the former, fifteen or twenty-five the latter, but they are the rates for the common camel, A carrier of the genuine Syrian stock can make three leagues easily. At full speed, he overtakes the ordinary winds. As one of the results of the rapid advance, the face of the landscape underwent a change. The Jebel stretched along the western horizon like a pale blue ribbon. A tell or hummock of clay and cemented sand arose here and there. Now and then, basaltic stones lifted their round crowns, outposts of the mountain against forces of the plain. All else, however, was sand, sometimes smooth as the beaten beach, then heaped in rolling ridges, here chopped waves, their long swells. So too the condition of the atmosphere changed. The sun, high risen, had drunk his fill of dew and mist, warmed the breeze that kissed the wanderer under the awning far and near he was tinting the earth with faint milk whiteness and shimmering all the sky two hours more passed without rest or deviation from the course vegetation entirely ceased the sand so crusted on the surface that it broke into rattling flakes at every step held undisputed sway The Jebel was out of view, and there was no landmark visible. The shadow that followed had now shifted to the north, and was keeping even race with the objects which cast it. And as there was no sign of halting, the conduct of the traveler became each moment more strange. No one, be it remembered, seeks the desert for a pleasure ground. Life and business traverse it by paths along which the bones of things dead are strewn as so many blazons. Such are the roads from well to well, from pasture to pasture. The heart of the most veteran sheik beats quicker when he finds himself alone in the pathless tracks. So the man with whom we are dealing could not have been in search for pleasure. Neither was his manner that of a fugitive Not once did he look behind him. In such situations, fear and curiosity are the most common sensations. He was not moved by them. When men are lonely, they stoop to any companionship. The dog becomes a comrade, the horse becomes a friend, and it is no shame to shower them with caress and speeches of love. The camel received no such token, not a touch, not a word. Exactly at noon the dromedary of its own will stopped, and uttered the cry or moan peculiar, or piteous, by which its kind always protest against an overload, and sometimes crave attention and rest. The master thereupon bestirred himself, waking as it were from sleep. He threw the curtains of the Huda up, looked at the sun, surveyed the country on every side long and carefully as if to identify an appointed place. Satisfied with the inspection, he drew a deep breath and nodded, much as to say, at last, at last. A moment after, he crossed his hands upon his breast, bowed his head, and prayed silently. The pious duty done, he prepared to dismount. From his throat proceeded the sound, heard doubtless, by the favorite camels of Job. Ick, Ick, the signal to kneel. Slowly the animal obeyed, grunting the while. The rider then put his foot upon the slender neck and stepped upon the sand. Two. The Three Strangers. The man, as now revealed, was of admirable proportions, not so tall as powerful. Loosening the silken rope which held the kufiya on his head, he brushed the fringe folds back until his face was bare. A strong face, almost negro in color, yet the low, broad forehead, aquiline nose, and the outer corners of his eyes turned slightly upward. The hair, profuse, Straight, harsh, of metallic luster, and falling to the shoulder in many plates, were signs of the origin impossible to disguise. So looked the pharaohs and the later Ptolemies. So looked Mizraim, father of the Egyptian race. He wore the Kamis, a white cotton shirt, tight-sleeved, open in the front, extending to the ankles and embroidered down the collar and breast which over which was thrown a brown woolen cloak. Now, as in all probability it was then called the ABBA, an outer garment with long skirt and short sleeves, lined inside with stuff of mixed cotton and silk, edged all around with a margin of clouded yellow. His feet were protected by sandals, attached by thongs of soft leather, Sash held the camis to his waist, but was very noticeable considering he was alone, and that the desert was the haunt of leopards and lions, and men quite as wild. He carried no arms, not even the crooked stick used for guiding camels. Wherefore we may at least infer his errand peaceful, and that he was either uncommonly bold or under extraordinary protection. The traveler's limbs were numb, for the ride had been long and wearisome, so he rubbed his hands and stamped his feet and walked around the faithful servant, whose lustrous eyes were closing in calm content with the cud he had already found. Often while making the circuit, he paused, and shading his eyes with his hands, examined the desert to the extremest verge of vision. And always, when the survey was ended, his face clouded with disappointment. Slight, but enough to advise a shrewd spectator that he was there expecting company. If not by appointment, at the same time the spectator would have been conscious of a sharpening of the curiosity to learn what the business could be, a required transaction in a place so far from civilized abode. However disappointed There could be little doubt Of the stranger's confidence In the coming of the expected company In token thereof He went first to the litter And from the cot or box Opposite the one he had occupied in coming Produced a sponge And a small gurglet of water With which he washed his eyes Face and nostrils of the camel That done From the same depository, he drew a circular cloth, red and white striped, a bundle of rods and a stout cane. The latter, after some manipulation, proved to be a cunning device of lesser joints, one within another, which, when united together, formed a center pole higher than his head. When the pole was planted, and the rods set around it, He spread the cloth over them and was literally at home. A home much smaller than the habitations of Amir and Sheik. Yet their counterpart in all other aspects. From the litter again, he brought a carpet or square rug and covered the floor of the tent on the side from the sun. That done, he went out. And once more, and with greater care, and more eager eyes swept the encircling country. Except a distant jackal galloping across the plain and an eagle flying towards the Gulf of Aqaba. The waste below, like the blue above it, was lifeless. He turned to the camel, saying low and in a tongue so strange to the desert, We are far from home. O racer with the swiftest winds, we are far from home, but God is with us. Let us be patient. Then he took some beans from a pocket in the saddle and put them in a bag made to hang below the animal's nose. And when he saw the relish with which the good servant took to the food, he turned and again scanned the world of sand, dim with the glow. Of the vertical sun They will come He said calmly He that led me is leading them I will make ready From the pouches which lie in the interior of the cot And from a willow basket Which was part of its furniture He brought forth materials for a meal Platters, clothes woven Of the fibers of palms Wine and small gurglets of skin, mutton-dried and smoked, stoneless shami, or Syrian pomegranates, dates of El Shelebi, wondrous, rich, and grown in the Nakhil, or palm orchards of Central Arabia. Cheese, like David's slices of milk, and leavened bread from the city bakery, all which he carried and set upon the carpet under the tent. As the final preparation, about the provisions he laid three pieces of silk cloth used among refined people of the East to cover the knees of guests while at the table. A circumstance significant of the number of persons who were to partake of his entertainment, the number he was awaiting. All was now ready. He stepped out, Lo, in the East, a dark speck on the face of the desert. He stood as if rooted to the ground, his eyes dilated, his flesh crept chilly, as if touched by something supernatural. The speck grew, became large as a hand, at length assumed defined proportions. A little later, full into view swung duplication of his own dromedary, tall and white, and bearing a huda, the traveling litter of the Hindustan. Then the Egyptian crossed his hands upon his breast and looked to heaven. God only is great, he exclaimed, his eyes full of tears, his soul in awe. The stranger drew high, at last stopped. Then he too seemed just walking. He beheld the kneeling camel, the tent, and the man standing prayerfully at the door. He crossed his hands, bent his head, and prayed silently, after which in a little while he stepped from his camel's neck to the sand and advanced towards the Egyptian, as did the Egyptian towards him. A moment they looked at each other, then they embraced. That is, each threw his right arm over the other's shoulder and the left round his side, placing his chin first upon the left then upon the right breast. Peace be with thee, O servant of the true God, the stranger said, and to thee, O brother of the true faith, to thee peace and welcome, the Egyptian replied with fervor. The newcomer was tall and gaunt, with lean face, sunken eyes, white hair and beard, and a complexion between the hue of cinnamon and bronze he too was unarmed his costume was Hindustani over the skull cap a shawl was wound in great folds forming a turban his body garments were in the style of the Egyptians except that the abba was shorter exposing wide flowing breeches gathered at the ankles in place of sandals his feet were clad in half slippers of red leather pointed at the toes Save the slippers, the costume from head to foot was of white linen. The air of the man was high, stately, severe. Visvamitra, the greatest of ascetic heroes of the Iliad of the East, had in him a perfect representative. He might have been called a life, drenched with the wisdom of Brahma, devotion incarnate. Only in his eyes was there proof of humanity. When he lifted his face from the Egyptian's breast, they were glistening with tears. God only is great, he exclaimed, when the embrace was finished. And blessed are they that serve him, the Egyptian answered, wondering at the paraphrase of his own exclamation. But let us wait, he added. Let us wait, for see, the others come yonder. They looked to the north, where already in plain view a third camel of the whiteness of the others came careening like a ship. They waited, standing together, waited until the newcomer arrived, dismounted and advanced towards them. Peace to you, O my brother, he said, while embracing the Hindu. And The Hindu answered, God's will be done. The last comer was all unlike his friends. His frame was slighter, his complexion white. A mass of waving light hair was a perfect crown for his small but beautiful head. The warmth of his dark blue eyes certified a delicate mind and a cordial, brave nature. He was bareheaded and unarmed. Under the folds of the Tyrian blanket, which he wore with unconscious grace, appeared a tunic short-sleeved and low-necked, gathered to the waist by a band, and reaching nearly to the knee, leaving the neck, arms, and legs bare. Sandals guarded his feet. Fifty years later, probably more, had spent themselves upon him, with no other effect apparently than to tinge his demeanor with gravity and temper his words with forethought. The physical organization and brightness of soul were untouched. No need to tell the student from what kindred he was sprung, if he came not himself from the groves of Athene, his ancestry did. When his arms fell from the Egyptian, the latter said with a tremulous voice, The spirit brought me first, wherefore I know myself chosen, to be the servant of my brethren. The tent is set, and the bread is ready for the breaking. Let me perform my office. Taking each by the hand, he led them within, and removed their sandals and washed their feet, and he poured water upon their hands and dried them with napkins. Then, when he had laved his own hands, he said, let us take care of ourselves, brethren, as our service requires, and eat, that we may be strong for what remains of the day's duty. While we eat, we will each learn who the others are, and whence they came, and how they are called. He took them to the repast and seated them so that they faced one another. Simultaneously, their heads bent forward. Their hands crossed upon their breasts, and speaking together, they said aloud this simple grace. Father of all God, what we have here is of thee. Take our thanks and bless us, that we may continue to do thy will. With the last word they raised their eyes, and looked at each other in wonder. Each had spoken in a language never before heard by the others, yet each understood perfectly what was said. Their souls thrilled with divine emotion, for by the miracle they recognized the divine presence.